Good morning. We have been in a series for the last couple of weeks on uh, being mission-minded. Some of you may have seen this photograph, or should I say this drawing, of a camp meeting that took place back in 1801 on Cane Ridge, which is just outside of Paris, Kentucky, which is just outside of Lexington. Maybe you've heard of that little town. And uh, that was actually a three-week-long communion service. Yes, a three-week-long communion service. Remember, this was back in the day when uh, there was horse and buggy and preachers kind of went through a circuit. and They had the circuit rider, as they called them. Uh, this little cabin here, the Cane Ridge Meeting House, um, was where Barton Stone was um, preaching, and it was a Presbyterian church to begin with. This three-week um, communion service was ecumenical in the sense that there was Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and preachers from various different uh, ilks that were there in preaching leading up to the communion time that happened towards the end of that three weeks. This is seminal in the beginning of our movement as, as more or less as, as it's been called the, the Pentecost moment of our movement, uh, where our movement uh, was taking hold. And today I'm going to talk about the beginnings of the restoration movement here in America, because it's an idea of if we want to know where we're going to go, we kind of need to know where we came from. And I know some of you are familiar with some of this history. Some of you are not. I'm sure a number of people that are joining us by Facebook may not have heard any of this before. So uh, if I bore you, I apologize. And hopefully there's going to be some things here that, that you will learn. Normally when we think about our country, we think about a map that looks a lot like this. Yes, we have our 50 states, and yet this is not the way it has always been. Back in 1775, uh, just before the American Revolution, our country was literally just these 13 colonies. And if you look there, there are many of those colonies which were not the size that they became when they were states. I know this is a little hard to read, but just, just hang with me. This was all Indian territory here. This was controlled by Spain. At that point in time, close to 1775. In the early 1800s, the West was wild. And of course, the population was mainly east of the Mississippi, which, to be perfectly honest, it still is. If you look at a map, there is a very big disembarkment from the Mississippi River, and you go west. And then you don't see a huge population until you get to the West Coast. Um, but all, most of the people were east of the Mississippi. But our eyes were on moving westward. In fact, many of our cowboy stories 
come from this era around the turn of the century in the early 1800s. In 1803, we have the Louisiana Purchase, and there's the beginning of westward settlement. In 1807, a gentleman who was an old-like anti-burger succeeder Presbyterian in Scotland by the name of Thomas Campbell made his way from Scotland to the Americas. And he landed in where we would call um, Pennsylvania these days. And if you noticed what I just said, old light, anti-burger, sex Presbyterians, I say that because it was important. Because people wanted to know exactly where you stood and, and whose idea and whose theology was it that you taught. And even among just the Presbyterians, there were many divisions. Thomas Campbell was interested in a unity that went beyond sectarianism. As many in this era were beginning to see. And there was a movement to try to get back to what the Bible says and to get away from the creeds of men. But can we establish a relationship with Christ based on what the Bible says and, and, and let that be the point of our doctrine? In 1809, the Declaration and Address of uh, in Washington, and that would be Washington, Pennsylvania, uh, a, a surrounding county area, that document, the Declaration and Address, is absolutely seminal to our movement. In that document, there were 13 things that were put forward by Thomas Campbell as, a condition of, as, as the positions for unity where we can come together. I'm not going to go through all of those today. I've got a lot of fish to fry, so we're going to keep this thing moving. In the 1820s and 30s, we have the circuit riders that are out, uh, and we get names like Raccoon John Smith and Walter Scott that start to come into the picture, and they're taking that message out on the wild frontier of Indiana and Illinois and Kentucky. In 1907, we have Oklahoma becoming a state, and this area here. And then the last two of the continental United States, New Mexico and Arizona, were both in 1912. And Hawaii, which is represented okay, I'm getting messed up here. Here we go. I just did it again. Right over here. Hawaii was the last state to be declared. Does anybody remember when that was? Some of y'all were alive. Yeah, 1959. But here's the thing I'm trying to say is our movement was born during that Western expansion in America. 
Thomas and his son Alexander Campbell both came from Scotland. Campbell, Alexander Campbell came a few years after Thomas. Uh, Thomas went to Redstone, Pennsylvania, established the first congregation that was part of our movement, which was known as the Brush Run Church, named after the creek, which was called Brush Run, that was right there where the building was built. Alexander Campbell in 1809 settled in Bethany, Virginia at that time, now West Virginia, um, because all of this area here was at one time the state of Franklin, And then it got uh, broken up into two different states. Alexander Campbell becomes the main focus of our movement as far as the fathers of our movement goes. Um, He was a great preacher, uh, a great scholar, uh, a very prolific writer, uh, an extremely good debater, which was the entertainment of the day, and, and a publisher... Barton Stone, located outside of Paris, Kentucky on Cane Ridge, and this building was built in 1791, where that 1801 Cane Ridge communion meeting revival took place. In 1804, Stone broke away from the Presbyterians. A group that Elijah Smith had formed was joining him in the movement. And in 1808, James O'Kelly, who was trying to call the Methodists in Tennessee back to the Bible and away from the creeds of men, joined the movement. And in 1832, Stone and Alexander Campbell joined their forces together because what they saw was there were many who were looking to get away from the things that divided us to get back to the things that unified us in Christ. In other words, it was a mission, a movement with a mission and a message to share. 1870 is when the Christian standard started. We still have the Christian standard among us. There are copies of it out in the foyer if you would like to get it. Not from 1870, but from this month. Isaac Errett is the one who started that. Walter Scott was going around and preaching what he considered and we call the five-finger exercise, where he would go into a town and he would find the kids and he would say, kids, I want you to go tell your, your parents these five things. Hear, believe, confess, baptize, live by the Holy Spirit. You go tell them that, and you tell them there's going to be a man over at this tent that's going to be talking about that this evening, based on Acts 2.38. And in those early days, not only was there Raccoon John Smith, but Benjamin Lyon was one of those early preachers. John W. McGarvey, you may have heard some things about him. He was also pretty prolific. In fact, I wrote a commentary on Acts that you may be familiar with. The Sweeney brothers, Z.T. and John and David Lipscomb were all contemporaries in this first generation of preachers of our movement. And there are many others that you have probably never heard of.
But from the beginning, the core of our movement was a unity movement, not a uniformity movement. There's a difference. If you look at Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about a unity that can be had in diversity. That is what they were looking for. Thomas Campbell in the Declaration and Address in 1809 said, The Church of Christ upon earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one. Oh, and by the way, that was long before any of our congregations were established. So they weren't talking about the churches that just call themselves Church of Christ. He was talking about the body of Christ in the world is to be one. That's the intention. In fact, in the declaration and address, he goes on to say that our only disunity should be geography. That we are one with Christians around the world. This was the prayer of our Lord and is still his dream today. We read in John 17, Christ saying, my prayer is not for them alone. In other words, my disciples that were there with him. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. In other words, us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? That unity of the church, the worldwide church, is essential to the good news of Jesus Christ and it being understood by all mankind. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In the Gospel Advocate in 1880, David Lipscomb, David Lipscomb's group became the non-instrumental churches of Christ. He wrote, There is no sin more frequently or persistently condemned or warned against as fatally evil in all its results by both Christ and the Holy Spirit than that of dividing a church of God. Do you hear what he's saying? When we infight among other Christians, we're on dangerous territory. You know why? Because we're in the process of splitting hairs when what we're supposed to be doing is in the process of sharing Jesus. We get distracted from what the mission actually is. 
Isaac Arad in the Christian Standard in 1871 put forth this plea. He said, The Church of Christ was a glorious planet, one revolving around the sun of righteousness as a common center bathed in its light and reflecting its glory for the salvation of the world. It has been broken up into hundreds of fragments, dim little asteroids here and there in the fields of space, some invisible to the ordinary gaze. Gather them up, gather them up in the name of God, gather the fragments and kneeling before God, ask him to make them one again and cement them in the blood of Jesus. Our call was a call to unity. Alexander Campbell is Father Thomas and Barton Stone. These three are the big fathers of our movement, and they sought to reform the church from within, but were forced out. Their desire was just to unite Christians, to look at the Bible, to agree with what is there, that's a thus saith the Lord, a very clear directive, and to have the compassion to allow for differences of opinion where interpretation is necessary. We do not have to agree on every point, but however, there has to be some basis of unity to be agreed upon. And what is the one thing that all of Christendom can really truly agree on? What is that basis of unity? It's that Jesus is Lord. He is exactly who he said he is. Now, we may disagree on how that lordship plays out, but that Jesus is who he said he is. We recognize as a group that we are not the only Christians, yet we seek to be Christians only. To have no other name but the name of Christ. As in the days of the American Revolution, there was a cry that went out through the colonies, No king but Christ! That's what we hold to. The movement fathers, their rally call was no creed but Christ. Alexander Campbell believed that there was a place for creeds. It was a good way to think about and to teach certain doctrinal truths. In fact, he would say the Apostle's Creed is one that can be used for teaching some of the truths of God. But he would stop short of saying that that had to be a test of fellowship. He would never use the Apostle's Creed as that kind of a test. The only test of fellowship was a heartfelt, solemn conviction that Jesus is Lord. Another basis of unity is the Bible is to be our only rule of faith and practice.
our founders did not believe in an apostate church. That before our movement was established, that the church had ceased to exist. And by some way, we're trying to, to reestablish the church. That's not what they believed. That, by the way, is the belief of the Jehovah's Witness. It is the belief of the Mormons. But that's not our belief. We see that the church of Christ has always existed through time. The reform that our men were after, our forefathers in the movement were after, was to get us back to the Bible as our rule of faith and practice. When the movement started, even up until the 1950s, 140 years or so, American society was was willing to hear our message. It was widely understood that our society was based on a Judeo-Christian ethic. And in those days, before internet, computers, television, radio, telephone, entertainment was, was a value including those circuit-riding preachers. In colonial America, the church building was the central meeting place in a town. And you could come and open the doors and wait for people to come to hear what was going to go on, because they did. There wasn't much of anything else that they could do. In fact, we forget that. (laughs) But today, our country has been settled. Gone is the wild frontier mentality. It's been replaced with the backyard fence and the living room lazy boy and the remote control and cable and a mouse. Church buildings are no longer the central meeting places. We have schools that have popped up. We have public meeting halls that are out there. We have the local ball fields that are being used. And with the advent of professional leisure sports, we have stadiums that are dedicated to football and baseball. And they even have gatherings at those places on Sundays. See, our prosperity as a people have made our ears dull toward God. And friends, we are rapidly following the path of Israel that we see throughout the Old Testament, especially in the times of the judges and in the time of Jeremiah, where our blessing if we're not careful, will become our curse. And today, because of all the voices that are out there and all the entertainment that is there, society has become dull and resistant to the message of God in Christ. Radio, TV, cable, internet, there's a vast selection of outlets vying for our entertainment 
attention. And people, given a choice, no longer choosing to go to church for their leisure and entertainment time. You add to that because of the divisions that are in the church of Christ, the larger group of those who call themselves Christians, who believe that Jesus is Lord. We have a church on every corner. And not only that, but most of them are fighting with other congregations. Even within our own movement, there was a polarization of whether or not we should focus on who we are or what it is that we are about. Within the first two to three generations of our movement, there were really three groups, but two very distinct groups that popped up and emerged. One was about doctrinal purity, and the other was trying to um, go with the restoration ideal of unity. And so doctrinal purity became the main thing here, and unity became the main thing over here. And some churches would even come to blows with people who didn't fully agree with their theological stance, even on whether or not there should be a piano in the church. That polarization resulted in three distinct groups. We have the disciples of Christ on the one extreme, uh, and and they they tend to go to uh, extreme unity, an idea of love over truth, and sometimes on the far end, love disregarding some truth. With the potential of forgetting the centrality of the message of the gospel. On the other end, uh, it tends to be the the Church of Christ, mostly the non instrumentals. Although again, it has there are extremes even within that group. There are there are differences where it's all about truth because we're commanded, and love sometimes gets lost in that command. And then in between, there's this nebulous group of independent Christian churches, some of which go way over to the love side and downplay some truths in the scripture, and some are so holding to the truth of scripture, they forget to be loving about it. So this thing that was supposed to be a unity movement within the first two to three generations was split into three different groups. Church attendance among our brotherhood has been declining for decades. Yet many congregations still, like in the 1800s, exhibit an open our doors and they should come attitude. Congregations clinging to the attitude of let them in instead of bring them in. It's one simple reason why many traditional congregations in America are declining at a very rapid rate. 
Now, there is growth that is happening in the body of Christ among churches that are able to adjust and to change their attitude, that are becoming less member-driven and more mission-minded, changing to an outward focus, asking questions like, how does our community perceive us? What are the needs in our community that we can meet? Not just asking why are we not growing, but what are we willing to change in order to grow the kingdom? Which also has what are we not going to change? And is that group based solely and purely on scripture? Or is it based on guarding a tradition It's a hard question. What drives our congregation? Is it a member mentality or a mission mentality? Are we doing things that are just make us a country club? That's for the good of those that are here? Are we putting our efforts at growing the kingdom of bringing people to a Savior that can not only change their eternity, but change their lives in this world today? Are we a yacht club or are we a life-saving center? Rick Rushaw, about 20 years ago, was the first one who came up with this question, and it's gone wildfire through the church in America. But it's still an important question that needs to be answered today. If our congregation were to close its door, would that have any impact on our community? Or to put it a different way, if we close... Would anybody even notice? Because the answer to that question has a lot to do with whether we're member-minded or mission-minded. How can we embrace Christ's go and tell mission. There's a lot of different ideas. And some of them are still in your head that I haven't thought of. But how can we embrace Christ go and tell mission? How are we doing at guiding people towards the cross? Are we as a body, as a congregation seeking to work together? to embrace our differences and to extend grace to each other in order to move the gospel of Christ forward? I bet you can answer this question. Do we still have a relevant message to deliver? Church, do we still have a relevant message to deliver? Yes. Is Christ still the chosen one of God? 
Is he still the only path, the only way that we have to get back to God? Yes. Does the message of Christ still change lives? Yes. Does the cross still make a difference? Christ came into a world that was hostile towards God. And then he established the established leadership of that day. Couldn't accept it. They couldn't believe that God was doing something other than what they thought God should do. That God was moving in their time. And yet the church flourished in that environment because they were spreading the news. That's why they flourished. Look at Acts and just read through there. And you will see that every time they stepped out in faith, the body of Christ grew. And the Holy Spirit was with them. Because God wants each and every soul that he created to come into a relationship that's a saving relationship with him. Everything was about the mission in those early days of the church. Acts 2.42 said they even got together to celebrate the mission and the work that was being accomplished. They got together to celebrate. They had prayers in the early days of the church. They would even take up collections and and send them to other Christians where they were having needs in another part of the world. In the early days of our country, our group was a movement with a mission. It flourished on the American frontier because they were spreading the good news. The message that God in Christ gave his life and he died an earthly death so that we do not have to ever die a spiritual one. I'm going to take just a moment here. I want you to Reach in your bulletin and I want you to take out that communication card. Everybody, take it out and, and, and write your name on it and your email address. Um, if you're a first-time visitor, if you want to give us any more information, feel free to do that. In fact, first-time visitors, if you'll fill your card out, there's a table that's got a red tablecloth out on it in the foyer. There are some gifts. There's a book there that I'd like for you to have if you want to take it with you. But you fill your card out and just set it in the basket there and pick up one of those books, pick up one of the, the Bibles there if you would like that. But everybody, write your name and in, in, in email down. I'm writing mine right now. On the back of the card, a couple of things here. Uh, There's a memory verse if you'd like to do that. I'd I'd like for you, since we did dip into John 17, if you get an opportunity today, this week, to just read that whole chapter 
Read that whole prayer that Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. And you'll see that he was praying for you at that point in time. There's a note here under the find out more about section, men's Bible study. This is just kind of gauging some interest. We're looking at getting a study going probably by the end of March, if not the end of March, the 1st of April. Just want to try to get an idea of how many of you guys might be willing to be a part of that. Also, um, this week we have put out a couple of different announcements that... uh, Uh, Andy Sarquez, who is running our guest services area, is looking for some volunteers for a very specific kind of um, of, uh, service. And uh, there is a block of information on the back of the bulletin that talks about that. If you're interested in talking with Andy about that, this is where you need to do that. Mark that and Andy will get back a hold of you. Plus, there's an area here if you want to learn more about becoming a Christian, you want to hear more about that good news, about what, what it means to be a church member, to, to undergo baptism, um, there's an area for that. If you have a prayer request, you can write it on the bottom of the sheet there. But you know what it takes for a congregation to flourish, to be on mission? All it really takes is changed individuals willing to tell someone how Jesus makes a difference in their life. In other words, mission-minded Christians carrying the good news with them every day and giving a hope to a world that is desperate for hope. Father God, we thank you for those that have gone before us, Christians for centuries, and even for those men and women within this country in the early days who were calling us back to a simple faith based on the teaching of the apostles and your word that is in that, that is in scripture reminding us that the message of the good news of Christ is a very simple message that you came and that you died for our sin and if we are willing to give our lives over to you that that forgiveness of sin is eternal And that you have a place for us when we leave this world. May we, Father, get excited about that message and be willing to share it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.